The competence in looking at data will drive your confidence. Your confidence, once that's moving, your success rate intrinsically and extrinsically kicks in, and then you'll never have procrastination problem ever again in your life. But there's no way to fast track getting rid of procrastination without doing the work to build competence, without using the competence to get success, which is your internal and external motivator. So unfortunately, there's no shortcut to this, but competence in everything is really the secret to procrastination and moving forward on anything. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our conversation today on secrets of peak performance. Our guest today is Shamal Valabji, who was born in Durban, South Africa. He's a sports scientist with a master's in psychology. So Shamal is with me right now in front of a live audience as we are recording this. Shamal has spent two decades working with Olympians, with professional sports teams, with corporate execs, patients, and children. What makes him unique is he started his life he started this career rather, living as a monk in the Hare Krishna temple. And he draws upon learnings from ancient spiritual practices in combination with science to help motivate and inspire people. So he's a world-renowned sports scientist and performance coach. He has been training athletes in all manner of different competitions, including the Olympics. And what he does is he specializes in transforming systems into workable, high-performance environments. So what we're going to be talking about today are secrets of peak performance. And Shamal is going to share with you some of the things he's discovered that make people perform at the peak of being in the zone, whether it's in sports or in work. So Shamal Valabji, welcome to Mind Valley. Thank you very, very much for having me. I'm super excited about this conversation. Let's get started with today's lesson. And I just want to remind the audience that's here with us live that they can ask questions. Go ahead, open up the Q&A button, and you will see a forum where you can ask your questions. You can also upvote each other's questions. Shamal, we will be taking the best questions, the questions with the most upvotes, the questions that resonate with you, and we'll be bringing members of the audience live to directly ask you the question. Okay? So, guys, let's all participate. This is a group interview. Shamal, we may begin. Let's go for it. So do you want me to start with some of the tools for peak performance that we can go with? You've been examining and creating a number of different tools, ranging in everything from intuition to mindset. Let's start there. So Vishen, the first tool that I realized I have to create, and this started literally about two decades ago, because I was someone like many sports scientists, you get inundated with data. And I realized that, listen, you can test VO2 max, you can test your blood composition, your pathology, none of it is a benchmark for success. Why? Because in the world of high performance, you got to feel your way through it. So there's no metric for how you feel it and how you create it. So the first thing that I realized I had to do was I had to quantify intuition in some shape and form. So about a decade ago, I created a very beautiful tool to help my athletes quantify how strong their intuition is. And it's a very, very simple tool that I created where someone just lets me know what they feel they should do. And we put a rating scale of it on one to 10. And then we track the outcome of that decision. And then we superimpose it onto levels of importance. And the reason why I'm doing this is because vision, 
You could have great intuition for something that's not important and have poor intuition for something that's super important. This whole conversation just hit me with a surprise because we were talking about performance. And I'm super excited to hear you say that you're tracking intuition in terms of performance. Yes, that's what we do. That's what I do. Because in the world of high performance, everything is about feel. It's about gut feel. And you need to be able to back that decision. But most importantly, you need to know how strong that decision-making ability is. That's what I'm tracking. And I track it against five different levels of importance. So if you decide that a skill is five out of five in terms of importance, okay, I'm looking at what is the strength of your intuition against that versus what is the strength of your intuition against something that you think is not very important. And this is where people make a mistake when it comes to intuition. They think that intuition is always negative. Remember, if you expect something and you were pleasantly surprised, your intuition was also wrong. So it's wrong on the negative and it's wrong on the positive, which is something that nobody realizes. So what I'm trying to do is I'm getting my athletes to start thinking about future decisions they'll make. And we start tracking how they're performing in relation to those decisions that they're making. And that's that gut feel. And I encourage it a lot. And the more data I get around that, the more I get a strength of intuition. And then when I tell an athlete, when he hits a 75, 80% strength on his intuition, then I don't have to worry about data. I just allow him to run free. That's insane. I've never heard of someone talk about intuition this way in sports before. Now, I've heard about studies like Newark College of Engineering, Professor John Michalowski, who tested intuition on CEOs. So he would hold up Xena cards. You know, you've seen the movie Ghostbusters, right? It's that card exercise that is in the starting scene of Ghostbusters. Bill Murray is holding up these cards and people have to guess what's on the card. There are five Xena cards. So Professor Michalowski at Newark College of Engineering did this with CEOs and he could track CEOs and intuition. Now, CEOs who scored higher in intuition, coincidentally, of course, there is no such thing as a coincidence, right? But they also tended to be the CEOs who were leading the highest rise in profitability in their company. So it makes total sense that you're doing the same thing with sports people. I'd love for you to go deeper and paint this picture. What is going on here? So what's happening is you've probably heard, and I mean, you've spoken to people like Stephen Kotler often who talk about flow theory, and we're all trying to get athletes into a flow theory. So before we get them, or once we get them into a flow, we need to have them to be able to trust a certain judgment. Because what is flow? Flow is an alignment between your conscious and your subconscious mind. How we get someone into a flow from an athletic point of view is we push them exceptionally hard in practice. And then in competition, they actually physiologically performing sub-maximally. And the reason why we do this is because you see when the body is fatigued vision, what happens is the first faculty that's compromised is cognitive and flow state is a cognitive faculty. It's the speed at which your subconscious processing and your conscious processing are aligning. But if the body is fatigued, you cannot have that alignment. So the first step for flow is to push the body really hard in practice. We actually have a saying, we say, if you bleed in practice, you'll sweat in competition. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make my athletes bleed in practice so they sweat in competition. Then I've now set the environment for an athlete to go in flow. Now, remember, when an athlete is in flow, everything is synchronized. Now, the ability to tap into options is directly proportional to one of two things, either the rational options that he's processed or his intuition. 
Now, sometimes when you're in a flow state in a high impact sport that's moving at hundreds of a second, the brain cannot rationally process options at that speed. So I need them to rely on gut instinct. But the problem is nobody knows what the strength of their gut is. So this is why we created a tool to guide people towards. And our entire practice is not so much about how you push the body physiologically, but how do we test what our gut is like in practice? And then how do we superimpose that in competition so that we have reliable data on what to do when you're in a flow state? This is exciting. So in one of my podcast episodes, I interviewed Stephen Kotler. We spoke about flow, right? Kotler, ran the Flow Genome Project. And I asked him, do you believe in intuition? And he said, I believe that the brain, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but you can listen to this in the previous episode of the podcast. He said, I believe that the brain, yes, is processing things and it's bringing stuff out from our past, from our subconscious. Is the brain tapping into information outside the brain itself? He doesn't know. I'm curious how you define it. Yeah, that's very interesting. In the world of spirituality, there are two theories. Some people say the brain is gathering information from the universe. The second theory is that the brain is like a radio receiver. It's like a music box, a radio channel. There's no music inside a radio channel. It's tapping into frequencies and it is the processing box. So a lot of us, and I believe that, that fundamentally your brain is really a processing box for the information that has out there. But you've got to decipher and understand how you're processing information. So your theory seems to differ from Stephen Kotler. What you're saying is peak performance is not just the brain processing what it already knows. It's accessing information outside the brain matter itself. Yes, absolutely. When things are moving at such a speed of light, right? And if you're in a calm state of mind, you are tapping into information. You're tapping into movement patterns that are so intuitive. Sometimes you've not even practiced it, but it feels right right at that time. And this is why flow states are so parallel to deep states of meditation. In deep states of meditation, what are you doing? You know this, you're a specialist in this. You're tapping into information that exists in Mm -hmm. the cosmos out there, isn't it? So why is it different in a flow state in performance? Have you seen that latest Pixar movie, Soul? No, I haven't, I haven't seen it. Okay, guys, if you are listening to this podcast and if you find these ideas interesting, get on Disney Plus and watch the movie Soul. So in this movie, Soul, it's about a guy who dies and the soul goes up to heaven and his soul decides that he needs to come back to earth. So how does he communicate? How does the soul in heaven communicate with souls on earth? In the movie, there's a gateway and the gateway is the flow state. So in the movie, literally, literally, so this man who dies, he's a pianist. Now, through a a quirk in heaven, he comes back to earth but then he misses a friend in heaven and he has to get back to heaven and connect with his friend. So how does he go to heaven? He gets in front of a piano and he starts playing that piano, putting himself in flow. And he goes into an alternate dimension, much like what you're saying. His mind expands. He's connected to another reality. He's connected back to heaven and he can communicate with his friend. That's interesting. Now, of course, all of this is philosophical. It's theoretical, but I love the way you explain it. And I love how it patterns this movie. Okay, so you're putting athletes in this flow state and they seem to then know the right action to take, okay? I get how this could happen to athletes, but what about the people here listening? We all have jobs. We're not professional athletes, but the people here are CEOs, are coaches, are marketing execs, are creatives. 
What does this mean for us? So fundamentally, what it means for you is, and this brings me to another tool that I created, which could be very, very powerful, every single one here. So like I told you, inundated with data, data is not even helping me at all. So I had to create a different metric. So I created an even simpler spreadsheet. It's what you say you will do versus what you do. So Vishen, all I ask people to do is on a Monday, make a list of everything you want to achieve in one week or two weeks, and then let's check it out. And you'll get a ratio between these two. You'll get a ratio between how much you said you do, you've actually done. And that ratio is an indication of your hunger, your desire, your self-respect for your own word, your trust for your own word. And I'm telling, so I don't work with anybody who doesn't have a ratio of 80%. I love that. Can you guide us through one of these exercises right now? Yes, I can totally guide you. What you just said about the spreadsheet of commitment for your week. I'd love for you to guide the audience here, everyone listening on our podcast through this exercise. I know we'll probably have the results one week from now and we'll be able to see if we're at the 80% or not, but do guide us through this. I think it's going to be really useful. Yes, it'll be super powerful. So Vishen, what we do is we create a very simple spreadsheet. One is everything that you say you're going to do in a week. So you list every single thing down. The second is a week later, you start ticking off what you've achieved. And now you're going to get a simple ratio in there. Now we do something else where I'm extrapolating on top of this data, the level of importance once again. So are you only ticking off exercises or activities that are of low importance that are driving your score up? Now, Mm -hmm. What will happen here is you will get a fulfillment score. A fulfillment score means if you are saying something is not important, but you're just ticking it off for the sake of the spreadsheet, it would give you very low fulfillment. But if something is important and you aspire towards working, and when you finally tick it off, then your fulfillment score will go up quite a bit. So what I'm trying to do is draw a correlation between fewer activities of high importance that drive fulfillment up. And when we can start finding an 80% execution in a few activities with a high importance, then you know you are moving in the right direction. And this is so important. And the reason why I created this is because you in the personal growth industry, you know that we have our self-image is who we are and our self-ideal is who we're trying to get to. And what is the mirror reflection of whether you're moving in the right direction? The mirror reflection for me is the consistency with which you stick to practices that you believe will get you from A to B. Okay, that's what it is. If you're consistent in that practice, that for me is the mirror in how fast you're moving. So I had to take that simple lesson and now create an Excel spreadsheet and quantify this data because I come from the world of sport. Data is king for me, but the right data is king. So that's what I've done. Amazing, amazing. Now, by the way, Shamal, I don't know if you know this, but there are 400 people live with us right now and questions are coming in. Okay, so I'm looking at the questions which are coming in. Again, all of you can click on the question box. You can vote up the top questions. So Shamal, you can take a look at the questions as well. And if you see any that you would love to answer, go ahead. Let's bring up one of our live audience members here. So I'm seeing one really interesting question from Ankasha Agrawal. Okay, Ankasha, I'd love to make you live so you can ask this question directly to Shamal. Yeah, hi. I'm a PhD scholar. I am doing some sort of research. So basically looking at antimicrobial resistance right now. And uh, my work is like a really high throughput uh, work. Okay, so it's like I conduct some experiments. I get a huge data set. So I like the idea behind my experiments, which drives me to do these experiments. But then 
when i look at the data that i have generated and that i need to analyze to get to the bottom of the results which i would actually get from those experiments it gets quite boring it's like i know that analysis of my data which i have gathered from my experiments is quite important but then it gets quite boring for me to analyze them so i kind of start procrastinating i just keep on pushing it one day after the other then obviously it becomes a huge pile up that i need to just do you know i mean i hope i am able to express to summarize that question so everyone listening can get the gist of ankasha's question right and it sounds like this is a question where you have something that you need to do as part of your job but it bores the heck out of you and so you keep procrastinating and procrastinating and procrastinating yeah exactly exactly thank you so much now, for something that what would be your recommendation because i'm sure all of us face these moments at work we're going to take it back to flow because there's a very beautiful relationship with states of flow so states of flow is what whether it's setsik mihali or whether it's kotler they all say the same thing that it's an intrinsic motivator isn't it that's what it's driving you but what we found is that you know people who get into a flow state have increased motivation to sort of sustain that activity so flow is in all honesty linked to competence and competence is what drives confidence so you're not going to find a person who's not competent and not confident ever achieving a flow state and the truth is that you are right now in a phase in your life where there's the greatest inertia because you're a student because you're still trying to figure out everything you're still trying to figure out what are the important data sets what are the things that matter you're in a really experimental phase and yes you're going to face procrastination you're going to face boredom you're going to face a lack of motivation and the truth is that sometimes we just have to muscle through this here and as you start muscling through this data set through these experiments you increase what's called competence competence in looking at data the competence in looking at data will drive your confidence your confidence once that's moving your success rate intrinsically and extrinsically kicks in and then you'll never have procrastination problem ever again in your life but there's no way to fast track getting rid of procrastination without doing the work to build competence without using the competence to get success which is your internal and external motivator so unfortunately there's no shortcut to this but competence in everything is really the secret to procrastination and moving forward on anything yeah thank you so much i'll definitely try to muscle through basically from what i understand you're saying is that i just need to start and then once the ball starts rolling i might just speed up right Yes, totally. The greatest inertia is in the beginning. Once you start, things will get a lot easier and you'll start drawing your own amazing conclusions. Like, you know, if you're listening for the last 20 minutes, the data points that I gave Vision, yeah. these were data points that came after spending 15 years in performance on the field where I realized that the data I was capturing was not working in helping me derive the conclusions that I needed to. Now that is a byproduct of muscling through for 15 years, isn't it? So that's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that the genius that is within you can only be unlocked if you give yourself a chance and that chance is by just buckling down and muscling through because that's what it needs to break through. Thank you. This is what I needed to hear. Thank you so much. Thank you Ankasha. Thank you for a great question. Shamal, my next question for you is this. In previous conversation with Stephen Kotler, who also spoke about flow, he mentioned something called the 4% rule. Now the 4% yeah. rule is basically this. He said to get into flow states, you got to pursue something that is doable. It's not too challenging, but at the same time it's a little bit challenging that you got to stretch yourself. 
Now I asked him, well, how challenging is a little bit challenging? And he said, 4% above what you're capable of doing. So if you can do job X in 100 hours, aim to do it in 96, 4%. He said he found that in his studies to be the sweet spot. I'm wondering if you've discovered anything similar. So there's very interesting research around 4% because I even use 4% and I use it in a completely different way. So when an athlete comes to me, this is what I'm doing. Let's assume the guy is a 100-meter sprinter and he needs to run a time and he's a national athlete and he needs to qualify for the Olympic Games. What I'm looking at is what is the difference between his current best time and the qualification time? Okay, and I quantify that in a percentage. Now, this is what I'm doing. If the value or the difference is greater than 4%, then the intervention is firstly physiological. So I'm trying to make him faster. I'm trying to change his diet. I'm trying to change his biomechanics, optimize his muscles, doing everything. If the change is less than four, but greater than 2%, then I'm looking at a tactical change, which means I'm trying to get lighter equipment, better strings, better equipment for him to use, because I can get a tactical advantage through his shoes and stuff like that. And if the percentage gain that we're looking for is less than 2%, then I'm looking at pure psychological advantages for there. Now, this is how I break up what I'm trying to do with an athlete at a particular team. Now, Stephen Kotler was 100% right in that we need to push above our limit to get into a flow state. But that can't happen every time. That happens in practice. This is what I said. You're not going to get into flow states in every single practice session because you can't quantify. It's easy to quantify it when you're moving down. How do you quantify it when you're pushing the body up? How do you say I need to push harder 4%? It's okay saying I'm doing it less. And this is where I'll challenge him when he says that, okay, you know what? Running something, trying to run it 0.4% faster or 4% faster is not something you can quantify. And it's not something that's physiologically possible. So even if you reduce the time that you're giving it, that may not equate, that 4% in time reduction does not equate to a 4% reduction or 4% gain in your physiological and cognitive capabilities. But that's what it is. You understand? So it's very difficult to superimpose an external metric on internal physiology and psychology and say these numbers match. I'll challenge that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you challenging that. I mean, one of the things that allows us to grow is to see the clash of ideas, right? And I already love the fact that your view and intuition is different from Kotler's views. Both of you research flow, but it's good to know that they are opposing views. It just means that there's so much more to discover and learn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider joining Mind Valley All Access. Now you can sign up to Mind Valley All Access and unlock every Mind Valley program instantly. Get access to transformation from all of the world's best minds in everything from parenting to biohacking to mind, body, spirit, entrepreneurship, work productivity. Learn from the likes of Ben Greenfield, Jim Quick, Shafali Sabari, Stephen Kotler, and more. All available to you for less than $2 a day. Simply visit mindvalley.com forward slash now. That's mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. And you'll be surprised to see that Mindvalley All Access now comes with advanced technologies to completely transform your learning, your networks, and your human connections, including our new private social network for students, Connections by Mindvalley, and our Altered State Inducement app, Ombana, which complements our regular training with Altered State methodologies to transform you at a subconscious level. 
Check it all out on mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. Mindvalley.com forward slash now. So you gave us a simple exercise that we could do. I want to repeat the exercise as I understand it so that the audience members who are listening could try this out. So it is Sunday. Okay, we're about to kick off our week tomorrow. We open up a spreadsheet or Airtable or whatever our list is, and we make a list of all our commitments for the week. At the end of the week, we measure those commitments. Now, what you said is we need to be at 80%. That means only 20% of our commitments for ourselves can afford to fail. If we fail at more than 20%, it is a signal that we are not what? What does that signal mean if we can hit 80%? We'll have to redefine failure. I'm not saying that you fail at the activity. I'm saying you fail at even starting to attempt to do that activity. And what that means is that you are the type of person who would buy a hundred books, but not read a single one. You understand? Right. So you are the person who's just saying things, but you're not even valuing your own word. And I constantly talk about hunger and desire. I said, you know, everybody has a hunger to improve. Right. But that desire, that willingness to do what it takes is within a few people. And that's what I'm trying to search for. So this is really my metric to search for the people who are willing to take that extra step in something that not I've said or you've said, something that they've said. I love that. That's a beautiful form of critical reflection to look at our level of hunger, our level of thirst in terms of what we know we need to do for the good of our life. Now, you also mentioned that you have a protocol for tracking intuition. Yes. I'd love to hear about that. The protocol for tracking intuition is very simple. You know, I've created a basic algorithm that takes levels of importance from a level of one to five, one being least important, five being most important. And I ask my athlete intuitively, what's he backing? What's he thinking? Right. And I make a note of this. And then we tracking what he's thinking against the level of importance. Okay. And then we go out and we execute what he's thinking in terms of a decision. It could be playing a shot. It could be a simple thing like deciding in cricket to bat a ball first. It could be doing this ball in a game. I should bowl a Yorker. I should go at this. Whatever his gut feeling is, I'm recording that. And then I allow him to go and freely execute that. And then I have a look at whether his intuition, right, what is it stacking up? Whether that was the right decision or the wrong decision. Mm -hmm. Now, Vision, this brings me to something really important. And, you know, I don't know if you ever read a Harvard study that said, 80% of CEOs are happy with the strategy in their company. Only 30% are happy with the execution of that strategy. And as we all know, there's a gap between execution and strategy. And nobody's dealing with a bigger gap than me in the world of sport. I mean, I'll tell a fast bowler, I need you to bowl a Yorker. He knows he needs to bowl a Yorker and he'll bowl a half volley and it's game over, isn't it? So, how do we close the gap? You were just referring to a Yorker. I was referring to the game of cricket. (laughs) (laughs) no worries so what i'm saying is i'm trying to close the gap between execution and strategy for my intuition tool to really be effective and we do a very very simple thing we call it a penalty for failure and actually this is very powerful for people who are trying to cultivate new habits so what is a penalty for failure you see in the real world when you make a mistake there's a penalty for it In a game, if you make a mistake in sport, there's a penalty. You're giving a free throw, you're getting penalized, you're getting dropped off, time loss. Some penalty exists. Now, how am I going to teach the brain that there's a penalty for a mistake in practice? 
The only way to do that is to bring in a penalty for every failure in practice so that the brain has skin in the game with correcting those errors. And that penalty for failure could be as simple as a monetary fine. It could be making them practice extra. It could be calling them back on a separate day. It could be asking them to run an extra kilometer. It could be anything. And I work on various penalties based on each athlete individually. But once there's a penalty in failure, the brain has a vested interest in closing the gap between strategy and execution. And once I get that gap minuscule, the intuition tool kicks in because that data becomes highly reliable. It's not reliable for people who have a massive gap between execution and strategy. So what you're saying is you actually create a penalty for having that gap. So give us a practical example. When you're training a sports person, what might that look like? For example, a penalty for failure in probably one of the easiest games that I could give you is probably cricket or golf. If you can pick a sport that you would like, we could probably use that. Or tennis. Tennis, you look at unforced errors, right? When an athlete or you look at a double fault, every time he serves a double fault in the game, he's lost a point. That's a massive penalty. Okay. Now, what is the penalty for failure in practice? So every time he tries to serve and he hits a double fault in practice, there needs to be a penalty for failure. So sometimes it could be as very simple, like he's got to spend 15 minutes more serving, or he's got to do something as simple as 20 burpees, or he's got to run. Sometimes I take a monetary fine away. Sometimes if he's a very senior player and time is very important to him, I call him on a day when he doesn't want to practice. There's no more optional day. I remove the optional day and I make it a mandatory day for practice. Anything that his brain is going to remember, right, becomes the penalty. Because now there's a vested interest in reducing the error margin in that execution. And once you reduce your error margin in execution in practice, vision, you start taking that into competition. So in our work life, can we apply the same principle? Totally. What would that look like in a company setting? So for example, in a company, leave a company setting, in an individual setting, let's say you say that I want to wake up every single day at six o'clock. Okay. You got to set a penalty for every time you don't wake up at six o'clock and that penalty has got to hurt you. That's how, for example, I remember working with a writer, working with a writer who we brought in the penalty of failure because he didn't have writing as a habit. So what was his penalty of failure? I got him to write 1,500 words every morning, and he couldn't eat a single meal till he wrote 1,500 words. So when he first started the practice, he missed breakfast. Sometimes he missed lunch, and he'd finish the 1,500 words at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. But if we stick to the penalty, after about two or three weeks, he was knocking out 2,000, 2,500 words by 9, 10 in the morning. Why? Because the brain has a vested interest in narrowing, in tunneling your focus on that particular activity so that you reduce a distraction. That is an amazing, an amazing idea. That was a big idea I learned today that I think could actually make a dent in how I show up in the world. I like that exercise because I'm a writer and I also love food and I love my freaking breakfast. And now I'm beginning <laughs> how I can plot with myself to push back breakfast until I get enough writing done. You just ruined my mornings, but you just made me <laughs> so much more productive. I think I'm gonna now be able to write two books a year. I see there's a new one coming out, by the way, on, on meditation. Yes, it's called the six-phase meditation. Amazing. Right. That's really, really, really cool. You sadistic bastard, but that's really, really, <laughs> really cool. I like that. So I want to look at the questions coming in. 
So here's a question. It's more generic. So I, I won't necessarily bring out this person, but here's a thematic type of question. You used to work in the Hare Krishna temple as a monk. Yes. What did living as a monk teach you about what you're doing today? So the first thing, when you start living in a temple, you got to wake up super early for shit, three o'clock, you know, and they start meditation to capture this time called Brahma Murti, which is the perfect morning energy. I moved into the temple immediately after coming back from the 2003 Cricket World Cup. I worked with India at the World Cup. So I come from that high flying life to moving into the ashram and to wake up at 3 a.m., you got to get to bed latest 9 p.m. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. And for the first three months, I really struggled. I was going to bed at 12, 1, so I struggled to wake up at 3. But you live in a dormitory style with everyone, and they all are waking you up. So I had to be present in the ashram every single day, sometimes falling asleep. And then what I realized, it taught me a really powerful lesson about discipline. You see, it took me four months of waking up every single day, being absolutely fatigued, but being present there, right, for the mind to switch into how important that activity was and imbibe that into my life. And what it taught me was that, you see, discipline is sticking to something long enough for it to break you before it actually makes you. And that was probably one of the most powerful lessons that came out from the ashram me. And I use that in my world of sport. I get people to stick to something till it literally breaks them down. They hate it so much because when it breaks you down, that's when it's got the biggest potential to really make you. You know, obviously that was the main essence that came in, but learning aspects like meditation, learning how to still the mind was super important because in the world of high performance, I mean, now CEOs are using devices like the Muse that has EEG, but in the world of sport, we can't just put devices in to tune in. So we got to use really our own physiology. We got to use our breath. We got to use our heart rate to control it. And meditation really taught me how to still the mind in a high pressure situation. And I learned something really cool, which I do with my athletes. So I encourage all athletes to meditate. You love it. I love it. We all love it. The problem is how do you transfer that state of bliss from listening to your calm music in a peaceful state into a high pressure situation where the ball is flying at you at a hundredth of a second or someone big is running at you. So what I try to do is with every athlete of mine, I make a two hour or a three hour recording whilst they're in a high pressure situation an audio recording. And as they get used to the meditative practice, I get them to start meditating with that sound and that music. So I'm teaching them how to zone in past all the distractions that exist in their real world. So I'm bringing spirituality and meditation into high performance using this very simple hack. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Now, I also want to give a shout out to your book because this conversation is so interesting. And I can see from the comments popping up that a lot of people would love to know more. The book is actually behind Shama. For those of you watching this on YouTube, it is Breed, Belief, Balance. Breed, Belief, Balance. Give us a little snippet. What is the key highlight of the book? So the book really helps you decode balance and balance in four pillars, which is body, mind, relationship, and environments. Those are the four pillars that I work in in optimizing the body and mind for any professional athlete. I believe they all dovetail in there. So I give people the secret of what is balance and I break down the myths around balance. For example, balance is not symmetrical. Balance is not equal and opposite. Balance is actually asymmetrical and balance is 
fluid and dynamic, you know, and I teach them how to find what is their strong anchoring pillar, which is the pillar that you can push yourself outside your comfort zone. You know, when you push yourself out your comfort zone, it's very unnerving. It's uneasy. There's a lack of stability, a lack of security, which is normal psychologically. For you to push yourself comfortably out of your comfort zone in any particular one of these verticals, you really need to be anchored well in another vertical. Why? Because if you get lost, you need to know where to come back home, isn't it? So I help people decode what is their anchoring pillar so that they can go out and explore the world. They can peel away the depths of their consciousness and the physiology with confidence, knowing that if anything happens, this is my home base. I can get back here. I like that statement. What is your anchoring pillar? Can we go deeper in that? How do we find our anchoring pillar? Yeah, so everybody has an anchoring pillar and that anchoring pillar generally is linked to a practice that you've had for a prolonged period of time or it's linked to where you've got the most success. So for example, an athlete would have an anchoring pillar in his body because he has so much of control over his body. He understands how it works. He understands how to push it so that whenever he feels like He's going through a lot in his environment or going through a lot in his relationship. He could literally just go out for a run and that would help center the mind and still the mind. For some people, it's the relationship. You know, you're an entrepreneur who's going vision, pushing the world, dealing with all sorts of people in the corporate world. You come home, you have a beautiful relationship with your wife. Everything else disappears. Your relationship becomes your anchoring pillar. So understanding where you're anchored helps you know where you can push yourself. And you need to know two things. One is where you'll push yourself. But the second is how much energy to invest in really keeping that anchor solid. And that's the beauty with it, you know. And when I say balance is asymmetrical, this is what I've realized is when you understand what your anchoring pillar is, right? You don't have to spend as much time in your anchoring pillar as you're spending pushing yourself out. So, for example, if you have a healthy relationship with your partner, right, an hour of quality time can compensate for 10 hours at the work where you're pushing yourself out the comfort zone. And this is how we dovetail between these four components to really find balance and discover yourself in some shape and form. I like that. I really like that. So my anchoring pillar, for example, is time with my kids. Yeah. I love that idea. Now, people are asking, what are the four pillars? There are four. And you said typically within these four, you find your anchor pillar. But what are the four? You cover again? The first pillar is your body which is your training, your nutrition, how well. The second is your mind, the quality of your thoughts, how mindful they are, your spiritual practices would fall in that. The third pillar is mind, body, your relationships. So your relationships with, and we use social science here. So five people who are closest to you. So the deepness, the deep connectivity in those relationships. And the fourth pillar is really your environment. So where you work and where you sleep. So some people find that just coming home is like, I feel amazing. You know, like you leave all the troubles of the world at your doorstep before you enter. So how you engineer your environment becomes your home base in there. For those of you listening, I want you to reflect upon this. What is your anchoring pillar? It's a beautiful question. And I've been thinking about it ever since you raised it. I realized for me, it's my kids. It's also my home. I love my space, but it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful question. Shamal Valabji, thank you so much for being with us today. This was a really, really fascinating conversation. I got a lot out of this. I definitely want to encourage people to check out your book, Breathe, Belief, Balance, and to check out your website, shamal.com. That's S 
T-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L.com. Now, before we go, would you have any closing words of advice for everyone listening today? Vishen, I think the one more thing that I would like to say that I learned, and this took me a long time to notice, is a little mind state, which is very, very powerful. The mindset between a champion and an underdog. And I think I just want to leave them with this because this is very, very subtle. Let me give it to you. So a champion and an underdog both will prepare exactly the same pre-competition. Both will enter competition exactly the same. They both will give the same amount of effort in. But where's the subtle nuance between these two mindsets? It's in how they take the loss. So a champion is so inflicted by the pain that it inspires him to come back change something and go back and win. Whereas the underdog just accepts it as status quo, he sweeps the loss under the carpet and life goes on as normal. The reason I'm leaving you this is if you want to know whether you're moving the direction of a champion or you are just resting on your laurels like an underdog, the way you need to look at is put a magnifying glass on how you mentally approach pain. Wow, wow, this one clashes. It seems to clash with another philosophical idea, and that is the idea of acceptance and surrender. Yeah. If we don't hit our goal, should that really bother us? Isn't it the journey? Isn't it the training for the game? Or are the yes, rules different? Absolutely. Surrendering to the outcome is what we practice in spirituality. It's what we preach. But surrendering should never deter you from effort. You should always come in and put a thousand percent effort in everything. And where the nuance comes in is when you say accept and surrender, but the accept and surrender comes with a caveat that I'm not going to work hard. Then you've got a dangerous combination. And that's what people need to go. So when I'm saying champion and underdog, I'm saying, yes, surrender to the outcome, but let the outcome also drive your process. If at any time you are saying, you know what, my process is going to be impacted because of a certain psychological state, then you're just sitting on your laurels, isn't it? And that's not a performance world. You are actually the victim. What you're saying is that someone has to come and do and I can't do anything for me. That's the worst state to be in. It's nuanced. It's very, very subtle. But the thing is that what side of the fence you decide to lay on could really be the difference between, in my world, I'd say gold and silver, but also in the world, whether your dreams manifest or they don't, whether the world knows you, the world doesn't know you, whether achievement, fulfillment, bliss, or any of those things. So how would we take this last concept? How would we take that and apply it in our life? If we are not an athlete, if we're the average person listening right now, and we're looking to be iconic, we're looking to be legendary, we're looking to get that next promotion at work. We're looking yeah. to be recognized. How would that translate to the world of nine to five? How that will translate is, Vision, you set a goal, you want to do something, you're working towards it. Let's hypothetically say you want that promotion and you've been told, I need to do X, Y, Z. Okay, you do X, Y, Z. If you don't get the promotion, one or two things could happen. It could spiral you into anger and envy and jealousy, and you could just hate the world around you, and that's victim mentality. Or the same outcome could spiral you positively, saying, okay, listen, I tried my best. It didn't work. And what could I do differently that everyone else is not doing? In the world of sport, we say it's the unseen hours that pay. So what is it that 
I am doing that no one else is doing that could give me a competitive advantage in a high-performing environment. So it's the subtlety in that. In the corporate world, if you move towards envy and jealousy, you are moving to what's called a scarcity mindset, which is terrible. You know, you're jealous of someone because they get something and I don't have it. And if you have a scarcity mindset, how on earth can you attract abundance into your life? But when you look at it like, okay, he got it. But if I work a little bit harder, I can get it too. Then that means it's an abundance mindset. You're telling yourself there's enough in the world for every one of us. I just need to work a little harder. And it's subtle. It's very nuanced. But this is the difference for people in a corporate world in how to adopt this mindset. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Shamal Balabji. And thank you so much for all of you who tuned in today. Shamal, amazing conversation. For those of you who enjoyed this, please share your notes with the rest of the Mind Valley community on Mind Valley Insights. That's insights.mindvalley.com. And for those of you who want to explore Shamal's books and work further, visit him on the web, S H A Y A M A L dot com. And follow him on Instagram. He's got a fascinating Instagram. Same spelling, his first name, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L. Shamal, you've got a fascinating Instagram. Love the quotes, love the art. Strongly recommend people follow you. And thank you for being our guest today on Mind Valley. Thank you very much, Rishin. This was a beautiful conversation. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys. Bye. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.